If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here, Scott Thompson. <laughs> it is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right. What is going on on the planet? Uh, uh, hey, how about them Jays? Oh, man. Do you remember Radley was on yesterday? And we were, I think we we're going to talk about the Bulldogs. And he goes, no, no, I just got, because I was on the air when all this was going down. I, I did see the uh, end of it, which was really just drawn out misery when you think about it. Uh, but, Ca- but Scott was referring to uh, the pitcher being yanked after having, uh, you know, a, a great run just because somebody else was coming up and the stats said that this is better against this one and that one and so on and so forth. Uh, so the manager yanked the pitcher and that was pretty much the game. Uh, after that. However, as many have pointed out, if you don't hit a run, score a run, hit a ball, score a run, um, you don't win either. And the Jays have failed to do that, uh, certainly uh, with any power of late. So as a result, the Blue Jays are out of it. And um, that is it. All right. Crickets. What now? Uh, other news. Uh, the, it's interesting. The, the prime minister and uh, Minister Champagne, which will uh, play for you in just a sec, uh, talking about. Remember the uh, gas pr- or the uh, grocery prices were supposed to go down by Thanksgiving, and they were called all the CEOs in and made them stand on the wall of shame and and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, well, uh, obviously, uh, uh, the leader of the opposition, Pierre Polyev, yesterday said, "Well, it's like Thanksgiving. What's going on, man? Has anything happened?" So he makes an announcement today, and oddly enough, it's the same day as the latest Nano's poll comes out. Uh, the, the Prime Minister also making a housing now announcement, nothing new, just an extension of of adding more to what he's uh, already done, which is basically showing up to a house fire after the home's already burnt to the ground, but I digress. Uh, and the new Nano's poll is out in 38%. Uh, for the PCs, that's majority territory up 5.5%. The Liberals at 26, down 5. Uh, NDP at 21, up a half a point. Now, as far as the actual leader and, um, and such, um, Pierre Polyev coming in at th- uh, 32%, that's up 5 points. Justin Trudeau down 5 points at, at uh, 23%. And Jagmeet Singh pretty much flat at 15% as to who would make the uh, best prime minister. So things are clearly a changing. I think we should have a new poll question for today. Um, if the prime minister was arri- if the prime minister was to resign today, would you be happy, sad, or indifferent? All right, I'll stop. Uh, gas prices are going to drop on Friday, so if you can hang on, uh, you squeeze it out till uh, tomorrow. Uh, the gas prices are going to drop a bit. There we go. Uh, and also, uh, when questioned in regard to the grocery prices, Minister Champagne, um, it's been quite a feisty little uh, display in the House of Commons today. The Prime Minister absent and uh, and and Minister Champagne uh, speaking up in regard to the grocery prices and Thanksgiving, which was supposed to provide relief. Uh, Here is what he had to say. Starting soon, Canadians will be able to see rollout of actions such as discount across a basket of food products, uh, price freezes, and price matching campaigns, to name a few. These measures uh, will bring a much needed more competitive marketplace, and the winners of that are obviously Canadians. 
All right. So um, I guess the answer uh, was there going to be help by Thanksgiving? No, is is really the answer. And soon, stay tuned. Coming to a grocery store near you, a sale or a price freeze or nothing at all. So. I don't know. It's, we just keep going around and around and around and uh, making promises we can't keep and saying things that just aren't true. Uh, and, and you wonder how long this can go on where uh, the party itself just doesn't look inward and say, my goodness, we got to make a change here. Uh, but, yeah, you know, somebody mentioned that to me yesterday. Uh, we, we were, I was, anyway, uh, saying, you know, if, if the prime minister was to step down, would that change the mood of the country? Would people be happy? Would people have a bit more spring in their step? And, you know, you got to think after all of these uh, late arrivals to the fire after the house is burnt down, as the analogy I've used, I mean, I I don't think anything better is going to happen here. I think this is just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And now Jugmeet Singh uh, chomping at the bit with Pharmacare and trying to get that rammed through. So um, I don't know, maybe uh, the NDP will, will, will get a bit of a backbone and decide to pull their agreement that has kept the prime minister propped up in majority territory for uh, quite a while now. Uh, obviously, had a majority, lost it uh, initially, and then lost it again, uh, even more so in the uh, in the last election with even uh, a smaller minority, and then makes a deal with the NDP to prop him up for, um, I guess, till uh, it seems like eternity now, really, at the end of the day. So anyway, it'll be interesting to see where this goes, and and uh, and if any of it pans out, and we get to see any grocery relief or uh, help at all. But um, yeah, I'm guessing most of the groceries are. Are probably bought right now for Thanksgiving, but that's just my uh, my interpretation. Nano's Research have just released uh, their latest, and I'll get you. I'll give you a real quick overview. Conservatives out in front, thirty seven point nine percent. That's majority territory with a five point five percent increase. Liberals at twenty six point five, down five. Uh, NDP at twenty one point two. That's uh, up a half a point. Now, who would make the best prime minister? Polly Ebb at thirty two point one percent, up four point nine. Trudeau, 23, down 4.7. Singh, uh, 15.6, down 0.3. To talk more about all of this, Nick Nanos, uh, Chief Data Scientist, founder of Nanos Research, and here now. Nick, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good, and great to join you and all your listeners. So, Nick, we've still got a long runway before the next election. Uh, Where does this go? Is this something that you can easily turn around? How do you, how do you, what is it going to take? Well, it's, it can't be easily turned around because the conservatives, the conservatives have had an advantage now for a prolonged period of time, and now the advantage is is opening up, where you know the thing is is they've got an eleven point lead, like it's a double digit lead over the over the liberals. And the kicker here is that before, when the conservatives had the advantage, Justin Trudeau and Pierre Poilievre were kind of tied on the preferred prime minister front. Mm. Now. Pierre Poiliev is ahead by about nine points. Usually whoever is the prime minister has the advantage because they're sitting in the chair. So for an opposition leader to be nine points ahead of an incumbent prime minister is good news for that opposition leader, in this case, Pierre Poiliev. Bad news for the incumbent, Justin Trudeau. And, you know, whether it's housing, affordability, groceries, what have you, housing, nothing seems to be getting better or will get better. I don't know. I'm being pessimistic there, I guess. But nothing seems to be uh, getting any better in the short term. How does that play into this? 
that plays significantly. You know, we every week we ask Canadians what their top national issue of concern, and you know what's jumped out ahead is inflation. It's it's up about five percentage points in the last four weeks, and then after that comes housing and the cost of housing at around fourteen percent. That's up four points. So. Meat and potatoes issues are more likely to be the focus of Canadians. Actually, that's what they want to hear from all of the party leaders from. They want to hear from the Trudeau Liberals and the Poiliev Conservatives about what we're going to do on the housing front. What are we going to do to deal with inflation? Because right now, there's a significant proportion of Canadians that are just worried about paying for the groceries in the next 30 days or paying for the rent and and the mortgage. Um, what about a change in leadership for the Liberal Party? Would that help? Is that uh, because they seem to be making announcement after announcement? They made two today. Uh, oddly enough, the same time these numbers are coming out, uh, and, and it just doesn't seem to resonate. They seem to be showing up to the fire after the house is burnt down. Yeah, the changing leadership doesn't always work. Remember Kim Campbell? Yep. All the conservatives, you know, the, then the Mulroney conservatives were near the end of their mandate there. Mulroney was not as popular at the end as he was during the beginning, and, and the conservatives thought that a new leader would change things around. Um, you know, the same thing, you know, the liberals remember that period when they went through Stefan Dion and Michael Ignatiev, where they thought just if we had someone different and new that it would make a difference. One of the things that's at play right now is a best before date. Every government has a best before date. It's very yeah. difficult to fight that. I think the one thing that I'm really watching is, you know, how strong or weak will the economy be when we do have an election? Because I'll tell you this much, if if interest rates are still at the same level and people are struggling to pay for their mortgage, for example, and uh, the economy is weak, people are just going to be in an ugly mood and they're going to look for some politician to punish and it'll be the incumbents, in this case, the liberals. If by the time we have an election that interest rates might be a little lower and the economy might be a little better, that'll actually help the Liberals because they'll probably mm. say, look, you may not like us, you know, but the reality yep. is, is we've steered you through the pandemic, we steered you through the, uh, through the Trump presidency, mm. and uh, now things are a little better. So watch out for those economic numbers because if they're, if they're negative, that'll be bad news for the Liberals. It'll be even more difficult for them to fight off the time for a change. Many have questioned whether uh, the supply agreement with the Liberals and the NDP has paid off for the NDP. Numbers pretty much flat, but, you know, I yeah. guess we're seeing the odd bump here and there. Is there a sweet spot for Jugmeet Singh in any of these numbers uh, to, to pull it first, or is he better just to hang on for the long run till this runs its course another two years? I don't think he can hold on for the long run because he'll just he'll attach uh, he'll attach his political fortunes to the Liberals. Like, he can't one day be propping up the Liberals and keeping them in power, yeah. and the next day run against them in an election. There has to be some sort of transition period. So one of the predictions that I have for 2024 is that at some point, Jagmeet Singh will pull the plug on the parliamentary arrangement, but he won't defeat the government because he doesn't want to be blamed for an election. Hmm. Because he's going to want three, four, five, maybe six months breathing space between supporting the Liberals and going to an election and that'll be our first piece of advance notice that uh, that an election might be coming, perhaps even before the 2025 deadline. Uh, and as you mentioned, economy, very, very important here, depending upon which way that it goes either way. If it gets better, better for the incumbent. Yeah. And, you know, think of it this way. You know, the if people are feeling good about things, then they, they might not be as uh, angry. And, you know, if you can't pay for the groceries, what do you have to lose by voting for another party? Not much. 
because it's, you know, and, you know, this is especially one of the interesting trends that we've seen is that young people, which back in 2015 were a big constituency for the liberals and a higher voter turnout, they're, they're basically, you know, they've been drifting away from the liberals and the young people have been going to both the conservatives, the young people that are angry and can't pay the bills. And then they're also young people are also going for the new Democrats because they're impatient because they don't think the liberals have done enough on their or delivered enough on their progressive agenda. It's interesting, too, with all of this, uh, Nick, and, and we're old enough to remember than, you know, this uh, argument being made decades and decades and decades ago. But, you know, there's more information coming out. Well, our young people aren't having kids anymore because they can't afford the housing or they can't afford this or can't afford. I mean, that that really drives it home. Young people are actually the most pessimistic, you know, you, than any other generation. And it's usually until about five years ago, it was the reverse. Young people mm-hmm. were always when I say young people, those under 30 were always the most uh optimistic about the future. And, uh, you know, the other thing is, is young people are most likely to say that they're dissatisfied with Canada as a country. Go figure. I think they score Canada, their satisfaction, like a 5.6 or a 5.7, which is a D if they were going to school. Hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, young people are not optimistic right now. They think that they're going to have a lower standard of living than their parents. And the thing is, is they also believe they're probably going to be burdened with a lot of the spending that's happening right now. Very sad. Oh, James, uh, Nick, uh, sorry. Uh, it, you know, it's amazing how, uh, do you think if all of a sudden there was a change or the prime minister announced he was going to step down tomorrow, there'd be change in the mood? Well, I think if if uh, Justin Trudeau decided to retire, um, I think Canadians would take a look at who the new leader was, but they'd still need to say, why do the Liberals deserve another mandate, and how would they be any different? Maybe the one lesson in all of this is if the Liberals think that they can do the same thing that they did in the last three elections and win another one, I don't think that's going to happen. They have to decide to focus on economic issues and issues that Canadians you know, are focused on, because you know, I think the, the agenda that they've been on, they've been focused on for a number of years, and I'm not sure whether that'll be enough to keep them in power. Nick Nano's with us, Chief Data Scientist, founder of Nano's Research. Uh, Nick, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. This is kind of, you know, I'm a 60-year-old guy. So, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff over the time, over time. And uh, I remember when interest rates were uh, 18 and 19 percent and, you know, the planet was coming to an end in the 1970s and 80s and the rainforest and everything and, uh, you know, famine. And and, like there's always been a crisis. There's always the, the world has always been coming to an end. But it seems nowadays it's like really coming to an end. Um, you know, like what's happening now is way different than anything else that's been happening, which it is to an extent. But as if we can't get out of it, as if we don't have the brain power considering where we are, where the world is today, we can't you know, change direction in some way. But, you know, again, doom and gloom sells. And, you know, I remember, and I've said this example many times, being a kid and watching All in the Family, which was a very cutting-edge TV show back in the 70s. And I remember the uh, uh, husband and wife, uh, the daughter of Archie Bunker, and, and, you know, her husband lived with them in the house because they couldn't afford a house. And they debated putting off kids because uh, they didn't want to have kids because they didn't want to bring a world, a kid into a world where there was nuclear war and there was gas shortages. And it's no different than it is today, except the crisis 
is different. And it's, it's, it's sad when all of a sudden this builds up so much that we hear, uh, Canadians are not having kids because number one, uh, they're not feeling comfortable about the, the world and also affordability. They now it's it, politics and, and whatever your, your, your feelings are aside, it, it just, it's not affordable. And we're seeing that now from Stats Canada as the birth rate continues to drop to historic lows. And as well, people are, young people are, are, don't want to have kids because they can't afford them. And where does that go moving forward? How does that affect society? How do we get out of this funk? Steve Jordan's with his professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and here now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I am well. Thank you, Scott. Great to be with you again. Steve, you know, I'm old enough to know that the world's been coming to an end for a long time for various causes throughout uh, the decades and such. How do we convince the generation that we'll get through this too? Uh, I mean, it, it does feel tougher. You're absolutely right. Every generation has had its sort of existential threat. It seems like mm-hmm. we have about five of them now. <laughs> and it seems yeah. like some of them, you know, like the global warming one, is on a one-way street to a very bad place and we don't seem to know how to turn it around. Um, so so there's no doubt that this is a, a very stressful time. But you also highlighted a few things. And one is you know, that doom and gloom cells, that our brain literally has a part in it called the amygdala, whose job it is to seek out threats and draw our attention to them. Um, And so it's always looking for a threat. And if the news or whoever are going to provide it, um, we are naturally drawn to hear that scary stuff and to think about it deeply. Uh, And that's why I think every generation has lived to some extent with that sense that the world is going down fast. Aren't kids a great distraction to all of that? Because if you're raising a family, you don't really have a lot of time to think about this. That's true. That is true. Um, I mean, when I think when we get to the kids things, this is there's this notion that probably a lot of people have heard before called Maslow's hierarchy, Abraham Maslow. And he basically said, if you try to get at what's motivating somebody? What are they striving towards? He described this pyramid that you have to kind of climb. And as you as you make each level, the next level becomes what you're striving for. The lowest level is basic needs, food, water, shelter, et cetera. The level mm-hmm. above that are your security needs, um, You know, feeling safe and secure. And then we get to things like social needs and, and wanting to be competent at our jobs and becoming self-actualized, all these sort of nice positive things. If those first two though are not satisfied, and, and especially that first one, when we're talking about mm-hmm. housing prices, we are talking about the basic needs, your basic ability to provide for yourself and your family. And if you start to feel Feel like, oh, I don't know if I can meet that. You know, I don't know if I can move out with the parents and actually survive on my own. Then that becomes sort of a, a preoccupation on your mind. It becomes what you're thinking about, what you're striving towards. And in in that situation, the idea of having more mouths to feed, you know, may be enough for you to say, well, I'm just not there yet. Um, and so it's almost different than the existential threats, which are the next level up um, to your security. It's almost a level more primitive when we can't afford um, the basic needs of life. Were we always going in this direction? How did the pandemic change this or how did it how does it factor into this? 
I mean, the, the biggest thing that I always point to with the pandemic is, is it really has hit our social connection networks, which is sort of the antidote to stress. It's kind of like, mm. you know, the things we're talking about are all the things that are making us fearful, kicking in our stress reaction. The thing that we usually use to kind of counter that are our close social connections. Um, they insulate us from stress. They allow us to kind of share our stresses with, with those we care about, and it helps us feel better about ourselves. And I think with the social, uh, with the pandemic, we've all become a little bit more isolated. We don't spend as much time just reaching out to others. We're not going to work and having those face-to-face interactions in the same way we were before. So I think we've lost uh, a coping mechanism, a very important coping mechanism. And that's making all of this stress just feel all the more difficult to, to carry. Um, and it's, it's making it sort of a chronic stressor, which is when it really becomes dangerous. How come we're feeling isolated still if, you know, for the most part, uh, things are whatever the new normal is? I mean, remember, oh, we couldn't wait for the gates to open up and it was going to be the roaring 20s and all that sort of stuff. And there was that for a a period of time. But how come we haven't been quicker to get back to uh, that headspace? I I think the pandemic just sort of accelerated a trend we were already seeing, which was towards Mm. isolation in the first place. And and I always like to mention the Genwell Initiative, a great Canadian not-for-profit that's trying to help people understand the importance of social connection and and to reach it. Even the head of that organization says, even before the pandemic, we were doing things like you know, building garages in the front of our house so we could pull in our car without having to talk to our neighbors. Uh, And that generally (laughs) we were living in a more sort of isolated existence. But once we added that work from home, um, you know, that made life really convenient for a lot of us. We don't have to get out there and do things as much. And so most of us work from home two to three to four days a week. And, you know, all those interactions we would have had at the grocery store, uh, at the Tim Hortons line, you know, just walking in the hallways where we run into that person we haven't seen for a while. A lot of those are just gone. Um, and we don't really realize and appreciate the importance of them at the time. Um, and we don't always really understand why we're feeling the way we do when we don't have them. But so many people now are feeling lonely. We call it a pandemic of loneliness or sorry, an epidemic of loneliness. Um, they've, we've heard the U.S. Surgeon General talk about that a lot. And it has real impacts on physical health, mental health, work productivity. It's, it's, a, it's a crisis that we really have to, I think, focus on and, and try to work through. So the advice here, Steve, get out, see people. Well, not even get out, just see people. You can go to other people's houses. You can get together in your backyard, whatever. I just see people. Hundred percent, and 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 realize that that you're doing two people good when you do that yourself and that mm. other person. And so you know maybe you're not feeling so isolated, but maybe you see some others who maybe are. If you can take the time to reach out, you will feel better, and you'll be doing a great thing for somebody else. So great advice. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, getting out of that COVID-19 funk. Steve, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott, and have a great long weekend, everyone. Uh, we know that uh, the uh, uh, Anita Anand, the Treasury Board president, has announced uh, a while ago that uh, about $15 billion needs to be cut from government coffers. Uh, we heard earlier uh, in the week that uh, the military going to get hit with a billion-dollar cut, which is uh, has many concern considering uh, where we are with the war in Ukraine and the pressure to actually boost defense spending. Uh, so uh, another issue that has come up is the outsourcing 
of work, whether it's consultants or what have you, uh, in order to save money, how much of this do we actually need? Um, and let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, and here now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Why do we have so many consultants? Why does the government need consultants? Well, I first really like how you're asking a consultant why we need more consultants. I think that's a great question to leave this off with. Um, no, it is a good question. Why does the government need more consultants? Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. There's a lot of consultants running around Ottawa. I'm one of them. I don't work with the government directly in that sense, but there's a lot of us out there, and we're pretty much brains for hire. But I would say that the government has a fair amount of brains internally that maybe outsourcing isn't the best idea. And I think the government, as they're looking to trim $15 billion, they kind of see consultants as an underlining expense that might not need to be around. So I think we're going to see some cuts and it makes sense to cut consultants. What about trimming employees uh, of the government? I mean, I understand the government has increased in size, so it seems odd that we have, and the consulting thing has been mm-hmm. uh, an issue for a while now. It's been in the headlines for a year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, the government's growing. Why do we need mm-hmm. consultants? Uh, consultants do provide some value. I, I, I joke earlier about that, but I think you raise a good point. Since 2015, the civil service has grown by 25%. That's a lot of new minds and a lot of new ideas and a lot of problems that can be solved. I think there's a time and a place for consultants, like we saw during COVID, during mm-hmm. unprecedented times where we needed more capacity. But I even think now the government's realizing that we don't need that much capacity anymore and that the government internally is able to do more. and it'll be a good way to save some money. Plus they, they might get out of the headlines a little bit because they, they do spend a lot of money on consulting. So it might be a win-win for them. And again, Daniel, nothing against consultants. Of course, I'm, I'm sure you offer great value. And, and you know what? Let's take it one step farther, Daniel. Why do we just not get rid of the uh, political parties and have the consultants run it? <laughs> well, you think it's that bad work? now? Just wait till the consultants get their hands <laughs> on it. Jeez, Scott. Uh, no, because, again, consultants do play an important role, but we need government there to run the day-to-day operations uh, of our civil servants providing those services. I think consultants, their place is to provide advice and guidance on complicated problems. Um, but as we're kind of returning to a state of normalcy, uh, complicated problems are definitely going away. They're still there in some cases, but broadly speaking, I, I don't think the role that consultants played in the past couple of years will need to be played again for a little bit. So by saving a little bit of money and laying off some consultants kind of also saves some problems because the labor unions are strong within side of the government and you don't want to be laying off civil servants. Your hired help is much easier to, to put hmm. to the curb than uh, as someone who's relying on this paycheck and pension later on. Daniel, do you think that if there wouldn't hadn't been so many uh, missteps or bombs for the government that this would even be questioned? I mean, I think people question this sort of thing when all of a sudden the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing mm-hmm. and the information doesn't get from one place to another, which we've just mm-hmm. seen happen time and time and time again. Is is it the environment that's causing this to uh, this scrutiny? Because, again, it seems the government if the government was doing a great job, I don't think people would mm-hmm. care. <laughs> no, I think you're right on that. I think that's why uh, over the past couple of years, uh, when things were a little bit rough and they needed extra support, no one really blinked an eye that they were spending billions of dollars on consultants to kind of bring in help. But now that the programs are that, that have been offered aren't solving issues, um, spending money on something that doesn't work doesn't make a lot of sense. And when you're spending billions of dollars on that, well, many Canadians are having a hard time 
paying for gas, even though it is going down six cents before the long weekend. Um, They don't really have a lot of patience for that. So I I think it makes a lot of sense to try to reduce some parts of the government and try to streamline, especially if you're looking to shave $15 billion. That's not easy to do. And and, and getting rid of some of the hired help that might not be working that hard is, is a good way to do it. How do you sell chopping a billion off of defense considering the world today? Uh, that's going to be a really excellent communications exercise the government's going to have to face. Scott, I, I have no idea how they're going to do it. Um, our military def- is in definite need of more support. I don't think shaving a mm-hmm. billion dollars is going to make conditions over there any better. Uh, we have aging planes, aging ships, aging tanks. Um, really what the government should do is look at other ways to kind of reduce funding, uh, spending, uh, Hey, maybe parliamentarians may want to take a little bit of a pay cut, but I'll save that for our friends of the Canadian taxpayers to bring up, but I just don't see it feasible them finding a billion dollars at defense to cut, because like you said, the war in Ukraine is, is continuing. Our defense program has been underfunded for decades across all political stripes. And it, it honestly doesn't make sense. Daniel Perry with us, an extremely valuable consultant with Summa Strategies, <laughs> and we love having him on. Daniel, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots to talk to Dan McTagg about, whether it's uh, gas prices going down this weekend, conservatives losing their build, uh, their bill, uh, their bid rather, to uh, strike down carbon taxes in the uh, House and the manufacturing of solar panels. Just a couple of things on the top of my head. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former liberal MP with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. Dan, do you find that when you talk about this stuff, you have to emphasize that you're a former liberal MP, that people will take you differently? Because at one time you were on that team. I was. Well, you're still on that team. Well, I can't see. And I still am a part of that. Yeah. What was once yeah. a liberal party, but uh, it's gone so far to uh, uh, to uh, the cultish left, I, I can't recognize it. I'll leave that for those out there who uh, who have time to worry about this. But for most people, working hard and recognizing things are getting really bad out there affordability being a problem. Um, I can Mm. tell them there was a time and a place where the Liberal Party would have actually given a damn. All right. uh, Gas prices going down heading into this weekend. We're already starting to see it in Hamilton. We had people sending us texts and such. Uh, Why is this happening? Well, as I mentioned, your colleague, Rick, this morning, Rick Samprin, um, it's uh, nervousness over uh, what has effectively looked like uh, the beginning of a recession in the United States, demand destruction. Uh, what could be a problematic report from the Department of Energy in the United States saying that uh, demand turtled by about uh, 30%, which is hard to believe. They may have got the data wrong. Uh, but it also, I think, uh, is uh, you know really testing the nerves of those out there who believe that finally, yes, we are going to have a recession and that somehow these prices that we're seeing are, uh, are not justified. The reality, however, is that uh, on the basis of fundamentals, supply and demand, there may be a lot of gasoline out there, but there's not a lot of diesel, and there sure as heck isn't a lot of oil. With countries like Canada not able to step up to the plate to uh, to offset what Russia and uh, OPEC are doing. Well, some look at this and say, "See, demand is down. We don't need to expand this in any way." Well, if demand's down because the economy is being crushed because of inflation being driven high by energy, energy prices that are mm. being uh, uh, driven high by uh, blocking uh, pipelines by preventing people from, uh, you know, exploiting natural gas and oil, then it'd be, we've come full circle, haven't we? Uh, and those who have pushed this may very well have achieved what they want. 
so it's not surprising to hear that many people are now visiting food banks, that many people are having a tough go of it, that interest rates are going to continue to rise as uh, the uh, inflationary spiral is being addressed by central banks with nothing more than their blunt instrument of raising interest rates. No, uh, green miscreancy has a lot to do with why we've seen these prices on everything rise to the roof. Of course, it doesn't help the federal government uh, in this country, and I, to a lesser extent in other countries, but notably Canada, which uh, has always had the value, the privilege of a petrodollar, no longer has that. And as a result, uh, your purchase power and mine has diminished by, what is it, 137.33 cents a liter? Uh, sorry, 33 cents to buy a U.S. dollar. That is taking... <laughs> 40% of what you earn and uh, forcing you to pay much more. There's no excuse when we have $80, $90, oil for us not to be on par with the American greenback and the Canadian dollar fighting for us. But as greens destroy and vandalize, uh, and those uh, with these, this, these wonderful climate uh, ideas uh, are using renewables and other weird types of technologies that have not been proven, uh, but are very costly and being heavily subsidized, as these things are being implemented, it's driving the cost up for everything, and more and more people are falling uh, between the cracks, unfortunately. It's something we'd have to think about this Thanksgiving. Are, are you surprised, like, for example, the Conservatives, I guess this isn't surprising because it's politics, but the Conservatives uh, trying to strike down the, the federal carbon tax or, or, or reduce it or in any way, and, of course, that's struck down because there's a majority with the NDP and the Liberal uh, deal that they have. Um, but, you know, like the, the, the government announced, like, a, a grocery thing today and a housing thing today. They, they, they come out, all, out with all of these different programs, but are you surprised that on the carbon tax, that is non-negotiable? There is no flexibility. There is no budging. Are, are you, and even Canadians are the same way. For some reason, they think this gets them off the hook. I mean, what, like, are you surprised how committed we are to a carbon tax? Or, and even a reduction. <laughs> I don't think anyone's committed to paying a carbon tax. I think that's the problem, is that no one saw this until it started to hit. And it's not just one, it's two carbon taxes. That's why in Atlantic Canada, the Liberals are going to lose the next election. For the first time in a very long time, most of those seats are going to go down. It's not surprising that one of those Liberal backbenchers did something that was very common in my time, but not common at all under Trudeau, and he broke uh, ranks. I mm -hmm. suspect that like any other Liberal MP in maritime areas which are extraordinarily vulnerable. And Scott, we wrote about this in our response to the federal government's push on the second carbon tax, the clean fuel standard. Once that kicks in, the most vulnerable people in the most vulnerable regions of this country would be adversely affected. And that's exactly what happened last summer on July 1st. Trudeau brought in not just the first, but the second carbon tax. And people who were hard-nosed, committed liberals, and now realize I can't make ends meet. I'm, just, I'm, I'm falling below the, uh, the waterline. It was very smart politics for the Conservatives, I think, to bring out the whole point about the carbon tax, because it's very unpopular. I rate it probably as unpopular, if not more unpopular, than the GST of my time in the mm. era, early 1990s. And so if the Liberals and their friends, their, their, their uh, compadres in the, uh, in the NDP and the Green block think it's a great thing, good luck, because there's going to be a massive shift and change in the Parliament uh, less than 24 months away, in my view, in my estimation, Andy, in my experience doing this for, God knows, 20 years plus, 40 years plus. What am I talking about? <laughs> Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Hey, good news is uh, gas price is dipping a bit, about six cents over the long weekend. Dan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. And you as well. Happy Thanksgiving to all your listeners. Take care, Scott.
A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Starting soon, Canadians will be able to see rollout of actions such as discount across a basket of food products, uh, price freezes, and price matching campaigns, to name a few. Starting soon. I thought it was all supposed to be in place by Thanksgiving. I thought prices were supposed to be, I don't know. Uh, the goal was dropping food prices by Thanksgiving. Pierre Polyev has been roasting the Prime Minister in Parliament for the last couple of days on this. And then blammo, just before showtime, uh, the ministry uh, Minister of Industry stands up and says, hey, there's a price freeze in the works, and we're soon going to start to see some uh, relief. Didn't we do this last year between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie, and with us now. Sylvain, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am well. How about you? I'm doing very well, and I know you are a very busy guy today. I see you everywhere. So what is coming soon? What is different today? You tell me. (laughs) (laughs) If, uh, I mean... First of all, if, if you're looking for a roadmap that would actually make the uh, industry more competitive uh, over the long term, I, I think uh, there were really interesting elements there. The Code of Conduct, um, the Competition Act, those are issues that we need to address. Uh, the Data Hub idea is long overdue. Uh, democratizing data, essentially, if you can't afford to buy data, small companies, for example, you're flying in the dark and you're at the mercy of larger corporations who can buy data and can tell you where things are going. And so that's certainly something that uh, is quite valuable, I can say. But if you're a consumer out there struggling with higher food prices right now, there was nothing. There was nothing today that could, could help you. Uh, they were they were talking about how discounts are coming soon and all of this sort of stuff. I, you and I talked about this time last year when they were freezing prices or doing something. And even at one point, I believe you questioned whether it was fixing prices or not. What happened a year ago during all this? Was it something not similar? Uh, I'd say, I mean, really, uh, right now, uh, I would say that things are much are looking better. Um, I mean, I think. I think Ottawa is trying to take credit for things that are already happening. I mean, mm. uh, and and there were some uh, some uh, comments about uh, discounts today. Well, discounts are often announced uh, on Thursdays, and so there's nothing new mm. there. And it, and the food inflation is actually dropping. So markets are actually doing uh, their work. They're actually making uh, things much more manageable for everyone. And uh, we are expecting the food inflation rate to end. Uh, to 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 finish the year at about five percent, which is pretty much what we expected last year uh, for this year. So no surprises there. I think I think the minister really missed an opportunity to make some key announcements today that could have actually made a difference or would have at least provide evidence to everyone uh, to believe that meetings he had the last few weeks were worthwhile. Um, Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, says this is all corporate greed, 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 greed. How do you respond to that? I don't see it. There's no evidence. Um, and that's, um, that's uh, people saying that aren't looking at the data at all. So if you look at the data, uh, food sales specifically, 
for all publicly traded companies, uh, you can see that they're all underwater compared to food inflation. For example, Loblaw's uh, same-store food sales growth is up 3.1%. Food inflation is right now at 6.8%. So they're making money selling other things. Same for the other companies. Food inflation in Canada is one of the lowest in the world. Uh, the second lowest within the G7. Uh, we're actually doing much better than a lot of countries. So you need to look around before you say anything about greed. Are you surprised that there hasn't been more reaction from uh, the, the CEOs that seem to be dragged through the walk of shame? Are you surprised that they haven't uh, supplied a statement, reacted in some way, other than sort of being marched in and marched out and, and, and the industry minister doing all the speaking? Well, I mean, a couple of weeks they showed up and I was actually in the room with them. The big five uh, was there along with the minister. And uh, and I think it was a, it was it was a good idea to show up. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, these people have a business to run. Uh, the grocery business is not an easy business. Uh, it's a it's a high volume, low margin business and uh, you got to keep at it. So, I mean, you can politicize food inflation all you want. And that's for politicians, but it's not necessarily. Uh, I'm not. I wouldn't expect that from CEOs to get into the political game here. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, if they're asked to show up, they'll show up and they'll do different things. But uh, the main job that they have is to feed Canadians. Um, you said you're in the meetings, and I know there's only so much you can talk about. But what do you think the CEOs think of all of this when they're sitting there and they have to uh, <laughs> digest all of this? I mean, are, you know, are the wheels turning upstairs and thinking, "Well, no, this is the problem here. No, we should focus on." It. Like, it, it just seems they're very quiet on all of this. Now, I'm sure in the meetings they were speaking up, but uh, but but what do they think of this whole charade? Listen, I. Ottawa knows, I know, and they know that 82% of Canadians believe that profiteering is behind higher food prices. Mm-hmm. That's a problem not for governments. It's a problem for industry. Consumer trust is just not there. And so yeah. this greedflation campaign actually worked. And there's we lots of evidence of that. There's lots of evidence of that where you want to talk about bread or anything like that, I guess. So the public has every right. Well, there's there's profiteering and there's collusion. Now, I actually believe, while I don't think there's profiteering going on, I do believe that the industry has a price-fixing culture problem. For example, the blackout period, which was sort of mentioned today, that's a problem. I mean, from November to February, grocers are asking vendors not to raise prices. Well, guess what happened in October and February every year? Prices increases. We're in October. Well, October fifth today. So guess what's going to happen to food prices over the next couple of weeks? They're going to they're going to increase because of this blackout period, which does doesn't make any sense today. And so that would need that needs to stop. But uh, the minister didn't mention anything about that today. Uh, what about changing of marketing plans for grocers? Is that worth it? I mean, is there anything for them to be gained by this? Or uh, like the uh, Galen Weston, you're better just to stay out of it. Uh, so, well, I mean, Galen is a chair now. He's not president. but I, I, So he is going to stay out of it. But at the end of the day, really, uh, it boils down to consumer trust, I think. And uh, 
I actually do think I, I actually I'm feeling a shift in the media. I, there, there are more and more reporters starting to actually look at the data instead of just falling um, for some of the overpowering narrative out there saying that there's mm. abuse out there. Uh, uh, CEOs are greedy and things like that. I, I, I don't think it's working anymore. I think people are just looking for solutions, looking for some help. And I mean, the other thing that ministers could have done today is to get rid of of taxes on snacks at the grocery store. There are four thousand two hundred products you go to the grocery store that it, that you're mm. taxed on, without any service or uh, any preparation. Um, that tax should go. It's costing more for consumers to eat all sorts of products. You don't even notice your tax, but that tax could actually should have been eliminated a long time ago. Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Uh, promise of lower grocery prices, we'll see. Sylvain, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. All right, take care. Bye-bye. How's that relationship going with Canada and India? Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, PhD Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and Monk School, University of Toronto, and here now. Jack, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are as well. So far, so good, Jack. Uh, Canada trying to not escalate tensions with uh, India after doing just that by announcing uh, all of this in the House of Commons. That's the alleged Indian involvement with uh, the death of a Sikh separatist in British Columbia. Is Justin Trudeau questioning this approach? In hindsight, what was supposed to happen here? How? What was supposed to happen after you announced this? Well, I think he... Uh... He overreacted to the very different way that the government handled the uh, the case of Chinese interference in Canadian politics. It went to the other extreme, and he uh, he broke this in the House of Commons. He may have expected that uh, that this would uh, that this would uh, not damage relations with India as much as it has. He may also have been focused simply on the domestic political dimension. Is India doing enough to uh, prove its innocence here? Are they doing enough to move this along on their behalf? It's tough to say because we haven't seen the actual evidence in question. And until we have, we're really just speculating about how significant that evidence is and what India can or cannot do to disprove it. Has India seen all of that? Uh, I don't know. I I would assume so by this stage, but... uh, it's it's conceivable they haven't. From the, the re- sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Jack. I was going to say the uh, the problem here is partly that uh, our allies have been rather hesitant in backing us because they're all intent on cultivating India as a counterweight to China as part of their respective uh, Pacific strategies. Now we have our own Indo-Pacific strategy, and and one pillar of that was uh, was building up India as a counterweight to China. That seems to have gone by the board now. What does India's reaction say about this? It suggests that India is not willing to play by the rules internationally. And that's something that's not a surprise, given that Mr. Modi is a very undisciplined and a, and a very uh, law-averse individual. You talked about the allies not necessarily speaking up because India is the new golden goose, but we remember China was 20, 30 years ago. Are we making the same mistakes? 
Well, we we may very well be, but the uh, the fact is, from the Canadian point of view, we have lousy relations with three of the major powers in the world: <laughs> China, Russia, and now India. And India is increasingly positioning itself as leader of the global south. We saw that at the recent G20, where it tried to act as uh, as broker between uh, East and West on on the issue of Ukraine. So we're uh, we've we're, we're we're compounding our difficulties here by our maladroit handling of the matter. How? What does Canada need to do to make India happy? To make India happy, I think we have to take a harder line against uh, domestic uh, Sikh separatism, and that's and that's a little tricky given that uh, this government, like a number of other governments before it, has been uh, very indulgent of uh, of the excesses of diaspora politics. Why is that? Ah, votes, pure and yeah. simple, uh, and and I think the devotion to the notion of multiculturalism that people can come here and bring their uh, their traditional political grievances with them. How does that play with the public? Because again, we know that that uh, that Canada is, is a land of immigrants. Uh, everybody's related to somebody who is an immigrant in some form. Uh, I, I remember back in my mother's day uh, when it came to conflict, whether it was the Irish with Catholics and Protestants and such. There was a very strong, uh, strong feeling that you don't bring that here. How have we stirred that up? I think we have stirred that up by by encouraging people to uh, hang on to their traditional identities, and uh, and those traditional identities often entail political grievances that, uh, that the government has been reluctant to uh, to try to stifle. Does this all come back to foreign interference and a weakness we have in in all areas of this? Uh, yes, it does. We are. Uh, I think we are widely viewed as something of a pushover. And uh, that has uh, meant that both China and India have felt relatively unconstrained to uh, muck about in our domestic matters. Will that change now that there's been so much embarrassment? Well, the, uh, the, the, the public outcry may force some change, but uh, you're asking a government to abandon fairly deeply rooted uh, habits it has, and that's always a tough call. Uh, will time heal all wounds? Uh, how do you resolve this moving forward? Can you just pretend it didn't happen and sooner or later we'll all hug? Well, time will at least uh, blunt the uh, the sharp edges of the disagreement. But uh, I think really solving the matter is going to require getting it off the front pages and getting it out of the, out of the House of Commons into uh, private back channels where this can be discussed in confidence. That's Dr. the only way to diffuse the issue. Uh, and perhaps maybe the way to have done it initially. Uh, Dr. Jack Cunningham with his Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We remember since day one when Russia invaded Ukraine and Russia thought at the time it was just a military operation and to take less than a week. And, of course, here we are uh, uh, over a year later and this is still going on and the hammering just continues and the destruction uh, in Ukraine. But the great thing is, is locally, a lot of people right here in Hamilton are doing something to help those uh, from Ukraine. And the YMCA is one. Lily Lumsden is with a senior manager of a 
Employment and Immigration Services at the Hamilton YMCA and is here now. Lily, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am doing well. Thank you. So are you still seeing a stream of refugees coming in from Ukraine? I remember at the beginning of all of this, it was it, it, there was quite a few. Is it still the same? Yes. And actually, it is increasing, uh, mainly because the deadline for Ukrainians to come to Canada under mm. the, the special visa, um, that deadline is looming. So by March 31st of 2024, um, Ukrainians have until that time uh, to come to Canada. Those that have been approved for that for the QIT visa. Um, so I, I do believe that as that deadline draws near, we will uh, continue to see uh, increases in um, in arrivals. Do you think we'll see that deadline? I'm not probably asking you a question you don't know really the answer to, but do you think we'll see that deadline expanded? I that's a question I do not have an answer mm. to. That would I be up you. to the federal government to, to make that decision. Um, as we get closer. I remember when, uh, I'm not sure if it was your organization I was talking to or another organization that was helping out, that for many that were coming, certainly at the early stages, they looked at this as temporary and that, that they wanted to go home. They love Canada and Canada's great, but they eventually wanted to go home. Is it still the same or is it people are here and they're 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 putting down roots? We, we see a bit of a mix. Um, we do see that quite a few people do have decided that they want to stay here. And so the great thing for those that do want to become permanent residents is the federal government um, did uh, put in new measures to allow that process um, for the Ukrainians, uh, a quicker process to, for the application and acceptance for permanent resident status. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing a bit of a mix. Um, but we're we're glad to have them, and um, we're glad to be able to to support them when they're here. Any idea of the numbers, Lily? How many have come to Hamilton since this all started? So overall, what we've seen um, at the YMCA is we've seen about a thousand um, mm. that came. That, now that doesn't necessarily mean that's all of them, but that's who yeah. have come through our center and the work that we do in in various with various programming in Hamilton. We've also seen as a result of the play airlines uh, coming and landing in uh, going from Europe to Iceland to Hamilton Airport, we've seen an additional 800, I just did the stats, we've seen an additional 824 Ukrainians arrive um, in, through the Hamilton Airport. Not everyone's staying in Hamilton, um, only about 10% of those are staying in Hamilton, but, you know, they are coming to, they are coming to Canada in um, in large numbers and and coming to Hamilton. So, uh, what happens then? I mean, obviously, a large Ukrainian community here. I'm sure that's helping out. What happens once they get here? So, once they get here, and especially what we're doing at the at the airport is, uh, we basically we have Ukrainian staff that meet them, um, and we really try to understand, you know, what is it they need. So, they're if they if they just arrived off the airport, uh, off the the um, airline, then we look to see are they making trying to make connecting flights to other parts of Canada. So then we help triage. Okay, here's what here's the transportation you need to get to Pearson Airport. For those that want to stay, um, we help connect them with family and friends if they're getting picked up. They might need a hotel stay, so we help arrange that. And then once they're here uh, and decide to stay here in Hamilton. Then we look at, okay, are the, do they have permanent housing? Uh, we have housing workers that can help them find permanent housing. They need a job. 
So we have, you know, the Hamilton community has a number of great employment services programs that can help them find employment. Find employment. Do they have children? If they have children, we help uh, get them connected to, to schools, get them registered in schools, um, help them apply for OHIP, pretty much everything and anything that they need to, to settle in Hamilton. We also connect them with the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, which has been really great in terms of providing, um, you know, helping them get furniture. So if they have find an apartment, help it, they need furniture. And, mm. you know, they do get some temporary income support uh, when they arrive. But when you're furnishing a whole apartment for a family yeah. of, of four or five, um, it can get costly. So um, because when they arrive at the airport, they come with suitcases and that's pretty yeah. much it. So mm. the community has been really great at helping um, rallying to help them get settled. How can Hamilton help? What can we do? Um, a couple of key things, uh, definitely through uh, donations of things like furniture, um, financial donations to different uh, organizations that uh, that do help the Ukrainians. We like to prov- we do provide gift cards for groceries, especially during the first couple of weeks when they arrive, um, because we have to, you know, where's the closest grocery store? How do we help them get groceries? Um, so being able to provide um, some of that support. Um, and then the employer community has been really great in terms of hiring um, the Ukrainian the Ukrainians. They do come with really high levels of education. Um, and so there's a lot of talent and skills that could definitely benefit our local community. Lily Lumsden with us, Senior Manager of Employment and Immigration Services at Hamilton's YMCA, talking about assisting newcomers from Ukraine. And uh, it's still increasing as that March deadline approaches. Lily, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Great. Thank you. All right. Um, it's just been an incredible uh, summer. I was going to say week, but a couple of weeks. It's uh, We were all talking about India a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, all of a sudden uh, the Ukraine president showed up, and there was a massive pomp and circumstance in uh, the House of Commons, and then all of a sudden a tribute made. We'd later find out uh, the person was a Nazi in the gallery being acknowledged by the House of Commons. Of course, it created such disgrace and in worldwide attention that the speaker uh, had to step down. We have a new speaker in place, but now we're finding out that Rito Hall is apologizing for a historic appointment of a man who fought in a Nazi unit in the Second World War who received the Order of Canada and later a Golden Jubilee and a Diamond Jubilee medals in tw- uh, 2002 and 2012. Where do we go from here and how do we... Uh, how do we resolve these issues? Let's bring in Bernie Farber, chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, and with us now. Bernie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm, I'm well. I hope you are as well, even during so the very difficult time. It's very bizarre, Bernie, because, you know, we're hearing about this and everybody is, is you know, uh, was throwing their arms up in disgrace as, as they should in what happened. And now we find out that there's memorials uh, and yet another person, and I'm sure this isn't the only one that has received the Order of Canada or been acknowledged in some way. What is your reaction to this, how uh, the story at this point? Well, I, I keep on saying to myself, I can't get more horrified, and I shouldn't because I, mm. I get more horrified with every you know announcement. Um, and I, this is a very personal thing for me, as you and I have discussed in the past. My, uh, yeah. my late father's family, my entire paternal family, except for my, my dad, who was miraculously saved, uh, were, were murdered by the Waffen-SS in the Treblinka death camp. 
Um, mm. So, you know, to, to, to have a Waffen-SS member applauded in, in Parliament is uh, literally stomach-churning. That said, uh, offering a, 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 uh, an order of Canada to a member of the Waffen-SS or to a member of the Nazi party is, is as, uh, you know, as difficult to hear. Um, so we, we have some steps that we have to take. Uh, this happened many years ago, and yet for some reason, uh, and I, I think history has this tendency, not necessarily to repeat, but to rhyme. And it comes back, and it's going to come back on us until we find a way to clear the air, until we find a way to make this uh, good again. And the only way to make this good again is to go back to the original uh, commission that was struck by Brian Mulroney in 1985. It's called the De Shen Commission. That found mm-hmm. a lot of things, not not which uh, we shouldn't re- forget, was the fact that he believes certainly 200 uh, supposed Nazi cases needed further investigation. Uh, he said there were 20 hot cases, some of which were investigated. None of them went anywhere. But there is a redacted portion of that report that has never been released. We don't know what's in it. I, I think that we can surmise that some of it is what, highly political, where prime ministers of the day, and we're going back to Louis Saint Laurent in the 50s and, and Lester Pearson and John Diefenbaker and even Pierre Trudeau, mm-hmm. um, you know, probably had positions on the issue of Nazi war criminals that will startle us, but they have to be exposed to daylight. Erwin Kotler, uh, former justice minister and, and, and the actual legal counsel for Canadian Jewish Congress at the Duchesne Commission, this is a Congress I, that I led for, for you know, decades, um, said, Sunlight is the best disinfectant. So let's open up these redacted portions that have, that have been gathering dust for 40 years and let us see exactly how complicit we were so that history is finally recorded well. Um, uh, complicit seems like an understatement when you think uh, that, you know, there's a, uh, a monument at a, uh, a Ukrainian cemetery in Oakville. There are plaques up. Uh, we're finding of this person from uh, through the Order of Canada and such. Is this the tip of the iceberg, Bernie? Oh, it is. I think for sure the tip of the iceberg. You know, you, you, you did not mention the University of Alberta where literally one and a half million dollars in grants and bursaries was donated to the university by members of this Waffen-SS unit. And you're right. I wrote about the, the monuments that, uh, that are up in, in Oakville and in Edmonton, monuments honoring Nazi soldiers, vicious, evil Nazi soldiers, not just ordinary soldiers, Waffen-SS members, of which Canadian Armed Forces fought during World War II, and many thousands lost their lives at, at the hands of these Waffen-SS members. What a stain on our country. Um, and now, let us understand, it's on private property. Uh, it, it's hard for, for us to get them removed unless the Ukrainian cemeteries take some action. And look, we as a country are struggling with our own history uh, now. We, you know, we have yeah, new information yeah. and better information on Sir John A. Macdonald, for example. Mm-hmm. And we're taking down his statues, we're purging his statues. Surely, surely, with moral suasion, the Ukrainian cemeteries can be convinced to take these monuments down. How did Nazis end up here post-World War II and go unnoticed and allowed to settle? How does that happen? Well, it, it, you know, it's a bit of a circuitous route. Um, but what happened after the war in 1945, this entire division, we're not talking about the others that came in, many others like 
Helmut Oberlander, who lived in Kitchener, who was a translator for a, a Einsatz, a killing unit, wasn't a member of this particular Waffen-SS unit. But let's concentrate on this unit. The entire unit of about 4,000, 5,000 men surrendered to the British in 1945. And they were brought to Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, somehow, the Brits convinced Canadians of the day that they did investigations and these guys were okay. There's a real question mm. as to what these investigations entailed because clearly they weren't very good investigations. And convinced Canadians to take this Waffen-SS group or members of this, of this group into Canada. Approximately, we're told, about 2,000 may have entered Canada quite freely, unencumbered. Nobody gave a second thought. And so when Mr. Hunka was applauded in Parliament, he honestly believed that he was a hero. Why should he not? He came into Canada being welcomed by Canadian immigration authorities, while my father had to wait, you know, literally, you know, years to get a, a permit a, a, as a refugee to come in from a displaced persons camp. It was easier, Scott, for Nazis at the end of World War II to come into this country than it was for Jewish refugees. Go figure that one out. Is this, Bernie, part of the uh, resolve of the Second World War? Okay, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to take this, you've got to take... Is that how we got here? Yeah, that's, that's precisely how we got here. And, and Canada was uh, played for a bit of a pawn by, uh, you know, by the British. But also let us remember that Canadians and Americans and the Brits were all looking for anti-communists. At the end of the world, uh, world War II, the Soviets it became the new enemy. And so, you know, they were looking to bring in from Europe anti-communists. Well, Nazis were, of course, anti-communists. And as mm. the story goes, told by historian mm. Irving Abella, who is the past president of Canadian Jewish Congress, all you had to do sometimes at the border crossings, uh, the immigration crossings in Canada, was lift up your left arm to show your SS tattoo. Clearly, if you were a member of the SS, you were an anti-communist and you were able to get into this country. Most folks just didn't give a darn. I mean, that's really yeah, what it yeah. came up to. I have better words than darn, but that's the one I could use on radio. They just uh, didn't care. I only got a few seconds left here, Bernie. Uh, the Prime Minister said public, serv uh, public service is looking into this. Senior public servants, your thoughts where this is going? Step in the right direction, but looking into it, uh, that's yesterday's news. These yeah. files need to be opened, and they need to have been opened years ago. Not looking into it now. It has to be opened soon and immediately. Bernie Farber with us, chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, Nazis in Canada post-World War II. Do we know all of the story? Bernie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. I got to tell you, the, the the Blue Jays manager, John Schneider, if the Jays lose this game and the way things are going, I'm betting they're going to, should be fired before he gets back to the dugout at the end of this game. All right. That was exactly 24 hours ago. And Radley was right. <laughs> it is. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator, who had it pretty much right last night, and he is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you've calmed down a bit. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's just a game. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. You it's know, just a game. it's just another team. You know, uh, what the uh, heck? As I said yesterday, the fury and I really was, I was so enraged yesterday and not because it was the Blue Jays and not because the local team was losing. I absolutely hate that the analytics 
are not, I don't mind analytics being part of the sport. Analytics are part of every sport now and they serve a really yeah. valuable purpose. It's when you follow them like they are religious dogma and can't sh- break from them and can't make decisions based on real life situations that I go, what, this is no longer a sport you're playing then. You are just filling out insurance papers. You know, um, uh, as soon as I got off the show, I obviously, obviously watched the rest of the game because, you know, uh, you got to watch the misery. Sure. And and uh, every analyst that, that spoke said the same thing. The only thing they added to it is by the end of the game, obviously no runs were scored by the Jays. So if you don't heat up the bats and score, you're not going to win anyway. Course, However, they all echoed this exact same thing that you said, and that is stats are one thing, but the game is played by humans. This... So like Don Larson threw a perfect game in the world series back in 1960, 50, whatever it was, something like that. Uh, by today's analytics, he would never have been allowed to finish the game. Roy Halladay threw a no hitter in the playoffs for the Philadelphia Phillies. By today's analytics, he would never have been allowed to stay in the game. It's just, it's ludicrous. If you are, if you are an athlete who is performing at an unbelievable level Numbers and computer programs and that kind of stuff should, nerds in a room somewhere doing math equations should not be the overriding decision makers. If that's the case, if that's where we're going, let's not even have a manager then. Let's yeah. just put Big Blue, the old IBM computer in the <laughs> dugout and have it chew out a piece of paper that says time to switch and we don't need what? people. And we don't need an umpire then, I guess, either, right? Nothing, nothing. You don't even need the athletes, honestly. <laughs> you don't. We'll just, we'll just have a, a simulated game and we can get rid of everything else about it. A bit of AI. So where do you think this is going? Is this all the manager's fault? No. And that's the one thing that I wish I had been a little more clear on yesterday, because I think the manager is to blame because ultimately it's his decision. But clearly, I think this was not just his decision. In isolation, there were other people and it's become very obvious. There were other people within the organization that had been part of this decision. And I would put the blame on them possibly even more than on him, because if your boss tells you to do something, um, you know, your, your boss is, and then things go horribly wrong. Your boss has to answer for it too. You've done what he asked, but I just, you know, Ross Atkins to me, um, the, the general manager of the team, he is one of these guys who seems so wedded to numbers and analytics beyond any human capacity to consider that the game is a game involving people. Uh, I just, you know, uh, as I say, he's, he's won nothing. He's won nothing. And yet he continues to get chance after chance. He built the offense that couldn't score any runs. That's, that's <clears throat> on him. He clearly was part of the decision because the front office would have been, and he would have been involved in that to do this thing, to take out the starting pitcher. I hope, and I like, I don't cover the Blue Jays, so I'm not going to be there, but I hope that if, and when he has a season ending press conference, the people who do cover the team absolutely give him the third degree. He does not deserve soft glove treatment on this one. He should be roasted. And if he does what he usually does and gives a bunch of answers that are the analytics version of English, where you're saying words, but they don't mean anything because it's just blah, 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 blah. They should just keep asking him and ask the same thing and the same thing until it's like he answers questions like the prime minister does in the house of commons when he's caught with something and then just changes the topic and says something else that no one understands. That's, that shouldn't be acceptable this time. Uh, for the manager, damned if he did, damned if he didn't? Yes and no. Um, 
So yes, as I said, if your boss or one of your bosses tells you to do something, let's say they said you got to take, you're, you're supposed to. So take what the, if he keeps him? What if he keeps right. him in and the guy flames out? That's right. So you're you're running the risk that you know if you if you leave him in and he's great, well, you might look like a genius. But if you're right, if he flames, then you're you may lose yeah. your job. On the flip side, if you know that you're making the wrong decision, but it's the boss's decision. Well, it might blow up, but at least I don't have to be like, when I go to talk to them, I was like, you told me to do it. You're not. So presumably he wouldn't be on the hook. So how do you think this is going to play out then? Which way is it? I think nothing will happen, which is the worst possible scenario because I really believe, I I mean, I tuned into a bunch of shows and read a bunch of stories and like, I I did the same thing you did to see, Mm. am I the only one feeling this (laughs) after the game? Clearly not the case. And the overriding sense that you get is Blue Jay fans have lost faith in this group. And this was the tip of the iceberg. They did the same thing last year and a bigger problem, Scott, we're going to talk about it on my show in the second hour, a bigger problem. If you're Barrios and you're a starting pitcher that got $131 million to sign on and you get clear, clear evidence that your team, the management of your team does not trust you at all. What, what success are the Blue Jays going to have luring free agents to come to the team? Who is going to want to come to this team to play under this regime when it's abundantly clear that you are nothing more than a chess pawn? There you have it. And more coming up after the six o'clock news, the Scott Radley show. You can and we'll read do the Bulldogs tomorrow, maybe. We'll get to the Bulldogs <laughs> tomorrow. We, we have lots of time for them. <laughs> we have three years, man. We have uh, three or years. Or more. Or more. All right. Uh, have a good show. Thanks, Scott. See you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This via text. Hey, Scott, time to go after this huge issue. Every major highway from Niagara to Toronto, accidents, Every day, some deaths, serious injuries. It's every morning and night. Slow down. Keep right except to pass. 